Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Religion Unplugged podcast. My name is Clemente Lisi, and I am a writer for Religion Unplugged and professor of journalism at the King's College here in New York City. We're here today with Dan Churchwell, who is the Associate Director of Program Outreach at the Acton Institute. Dan has worked at an array of places, has worked as a professor, and is here with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do at Acton. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I have a very uh, diverse background uh, for the last three, almost three and a half years. I've worked in a program role at the Acton Institute. Um, our main idea is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. So we're a think tank that uh, supports the connection of religion and economics. And what we're looking to do is connect good intentions to sound economics. We find a lot of times that people have a real heart for the poor, but not a head for the poor. And how do we connect the two? And we, we do that primarily through three ways. We have a research department, a program department, and a media arm. And we produce world-class media. Some of you might have uh, seen Poverty, Inc., Poverty Incorporated, a fantastic documentary that deals with the failure of the international aid movement. We also uh, have a great uh, peer-reviewed journal called the Journal of Markets and Morality that has a, comes out twice a year with great articles on faith, religion, and economics. And then uh, my team, we do about 60 events a year. We travel the country. We have an office in Rome and Argentina. And we put on programs for college students, college professors. Uh, right now, there's a great conference going on right across the, the island here. And it's for pastors and nonprofit city leaders working through different economic challenges in the inner city. So we're really a wide array of programming that we do all around the country. So individual liberty sustained by religious principles. It seems like there aren't a lot of people in this space so maybe you guys are unique in that way, but what are some of the challenges in America today in marrying these two and, and promoting it? Yeah, think tanks are a fascinating, you know, uh, entity. We, uh, we are an economic think tank that focuses on religious angles. And so how we differentiate ourselves is we start with the understanding that we are uh, anthropological creatures. We're made in the image of God to be co-creative with him. And so how does our anthropology then shape what we think about how economic systems should be, should look. And obviously that's uh, stable institutions, strong families, stable uh, employment, these kinds of things that lead to strong institutions, lead to strong communities, which leads to strong local governments. And we try to promote those kinds of ideas through the array of programming and media that we do. This sounds to me like a lot like Catholic social teaching, or at least components of it are. Yeah, that's great. We're uh, we're an ecumenical think tank, and so we're very uh, obviously religiously minded, um, but we have a wide array of people who work for us. We were founded by a Catholic priest, Father Robert Sirico, who was just recently featured in the Wall Street Journal, a major op-ed. Um, and these kinds of things were really on his mind almost 30 years ago, he realized that many Catholic seminarians didn't come out of seminary with any kind of economic training. 
and he asked around and some of the Protestant uh, people that he knew realized that in Protestant seminaries, there wasn't a lot of economic training either. So they had the opportunity to think through a, a think tank that would augment the training that people were getting in seminaries. And with one or two programs, they started a... They say their first office was above a flower shop in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they started very small. Now we have a staff of, uh, you know, 45, beautiful building in downtown Grand Rapids and do all of these programs around the world. So it really has grown in the last 30 years. Which is a good segue to what I want to bring up, which is how America has changed demographically and even in terms of the family. So there's a recent study that came out. So I'll throw some numbers at you. So in 1998, the Wall Street Journal and NBC News asked several hundred young Americans to name their most important values. Work ethic was number one, followed by patriotism, religion, and having children. Now, two decades later, the same pollster is asked a question of today's 18-year-olds which to 38-year-olds, which are known as millennials and Generation Z, right? And today's young people were 10% points less likely to value having children, 20 points less likely to have value for patriotism or religion. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that? Why is there this decline in these institutions? Yeah, I think uh, we might have read the same article. Derek Thompson wrote a, a fantastic piece for The Atlantic where he lined out some of these ideas. And I really find um, that that is the reason we are so successful at the Acton Institute, why there's such a need for what we do is because of the fragmentation of those uh, three groups that you mentioned. And I, I think it's wide ranging. I mean, you would have to have a, a sociologist, an economist, a philosopher, a politician. You know, I mean, we could, we could have a, a two day long conference just on that topic. But I think it exists and it's, it's pretty clear that when those institutions fracture, then there is certain kinds of social, psychic, and economic fragmentation and re revolutions of certain kinds, certain degree. And uh, we're here to just bring good statistics uh, and again, sound um, economic wisdom, sound Catholic teaching. But we're, again, we're, I'm, I'm personally Protestant. And so we have Protestants, we have Catholics, we have even Muslim scholars who are thinking through this. What does it mean to live in a free and virtuous society together and, and that, that's a very interdisciplinary conversation, and it's needed because of the statistics you read. Right. What do you, but what do you, what do you make of them? What, what, why do you think we've gotten here? What, why would these younger people, and I, I work with young people here at the King's College, um, college students, and you know, I, they tell me all the time, well, I don't want to have kids, or I don't care for, about having kids, or is it something that's happening politically? Is it something that's happening, is it a decline of church attendance? These things all seem to be working together against against this this trend right or yeah yeah some of, some of these are coalescing or, right. or um on one level i think the you know it, it's interesting at, at a religious it, it depends on which demographic you're talking about or organization you know, here at the king's college i know not all students are christian but it, it has a christian foundation and, right. and it, when you have a religious foundation and you have certain students saying you know a family isn't for me sure a family uh, Russell Moore got in trouble recently for acting like, you know, to be married is to be human. And it sounded like he detracted from the single, the gift of being single and, and other things. And so that's not what we're talking about. But obviously, strong, stable families do build, help build strong, stable communities. Um, post-2008, you have the economic crisis that there was good recovery for certain types of people and not others. So there was economic fragmentation. 
family fragmentation, economic fragmentation, and then obviously the last few years, uh, we don't need to get in much political engagement here, um, but there's been a political fragmentation that's just raw and obvious. And so those, whether they go to church or not, it seems like less of them are going to church, so it's just becoming irrelevant, marginalized, uh, again, which is not necessarily new. And then you have this political moment where they can't seem, they, they don't want to get up behind a certain Republican or Democrat. They just want to stay in the middle of the fray. And uh, I think having people see that there is a need to commit and there's a lack of commitment to a certain ideology that they just want to stay in the middle. They don't know how to decide, either aren't equipped or just choosing to stay. And there's a, an element of courage, the virtue of courage of saying, here are certain beliefs that I have, here are certain understandings that I have about how the world should work. And if we don't build those early or give people at least hooks to hang those ideas on, uh, then they really become unmoored from any kind of objective morality or objective political structure or the, the obje objectivity just goes out the windows pretty quickly. No, I agree with you. And I think that the recession in a way did trigger a lot of this. And I think a lot of these young people were just children or young young at the time. And right. I think that they saw this breakdown of institutions, this distrust of banks. At the same time, you had various scandals in the Catholic Church and other places where, you know, people, these, pla these are places you rely on, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's disintegrating. But I also think what's changing in our culture is, is um, technology. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and it's totally dominating our culture. I know you study media ecology, and you can't mention media ecology without talking about the internet, social media, right? And these tools were created to bring us more together. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's fragmenting us even more. You know, it's the Netflix generation. Everyone's watching something different on TV every night, and, and we don't have that common bond. Um, how has social media or even the internet impacted religion, faith, and, and do you think it's part of the reason for disintegration of communities in some ways? Sure. Um, as a theologically minded person, obviously, I think who we are, how we are made in the image of God is, is essential to understand our anthropology, but then that bleeds into our ecclesiology. In other words, why do we go to church? What's it for? Um, I was first uh, to, to quote the Matrix, you know, the splinter in my mind that reminded me of this was over 20 years ago, I first read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And it's about the same size as some of his other books, but people get scared away because it's not like um, his easier reads. It's three lectures, you know, it's three chapter book, but it's three lectures he gave in 1934. And so it's about the same time that all this other dystopian literature was being written. And uh, I, I just really think uh, in his third chapter on the abolition of man, he argues that he saw technology as fewer and fewer men having more and more power over more and more men. And he, he uses radio, contraception, um, and the airplane as his examples, you know, almost 100 years ago. And, and so I began to study this and think about this topic for almost 20 years. And over the last three years in my role at Acton, I do a lot of programming, but working at a think tank gives me the time to research and talk and, and, and meet people all around the country that are trying to work through this problem. And media ecology uh, started in the late 60s. 
Neil Neil Postman popularized it, but Marshall it, it emerged out of Marshall McLuhan's thought. Uh, the medium is the message. This idea of global village, and that was another era of revolution, right? 1968, right. major revolution going on. They were trying to think, what is this new media? Right then, television was primarily the new media, and now we have the internet. And there was a about a 20 to 25 year growth span in media ecology, and then it it, it got quiet. And then now it's strongly emerging. I was just at the 20th anniversary of the Media Ecology Association in Toronto. And there were almost 400 people there from 40 different countries trying to work through what is this new media? What is, um, so it's not just the internet, it's our cities. It's you know, the technologies that emerge that create an ecosystem in which we live and a culture in which we live. And so if theology, if church, if a Godward-facing mind isn't a part of those conversations, well, again, that, that idea of theological reflection is just going to be marginalized. And so that's why I think we should, our churches, our colleges, we should be thinking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God and in a world full of technology? How, do, how are we human? And I think that's a question um, how do we stay human? How do we think humanely about much of the technology that is happening? What, what media ecology points out is many people think we use technology, but technology is actually using us back. Technology changes us. And that's the debate between the techno-optimist and the techno-pessimist. And we need, in churches, need to have that conversation. Yeah, I like you say stay human, and I do agree. I, I, I do agree that there's this push-pull with technology, especially... You know, if I'm watching Netflix, I bring that up again, and the algorithm tells me I should watch something. Is it me making that decision, or am I being told to watch something, and then I will do that? Mm -hmm. But I have noticed in New York and other cities around the country and the world that it's hard to have community when you have a virtual life. You know, we have young people, children, they, they live on the computer. Um, they live on, they play video games, they, they're on the internet. And so when you're spending 10 hours a day on your smartphone or on your laptop, how do you how do you engage in community? I know people joke around. How do you get kids to go out? You know, and in that way, technology is, has an adverse effect on us. And so, how you know how how do faith communities reconcile that? And how do you how do you how do you marry those things without you know? I mean, the eight year old brain can't deal with technology like we can. We're, we right. you know, technology has come to us as adults. It's easier, but this is just still developing. And, and the science on this is not fully developed because we're not the sample size isn't big enough yet. Right. No, it, it takes 20 to 30 years for real ideas to un be uh, distilled. And I, I love what Sherry Turkle says in her book, um, Reclaiming Conversation. She said that technology gives us the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. And so the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. And a lot of our online world, sure, there are friendships and connections made, but it's in an almost an artificial ecosystem. Recently, I had the chance to be on a panel um, of theologians, practitioners, uh, people that are very highly publicized in this uh, digital ecclesiology space where there's a not online church. Online church is something that's been 20 years old. People post their sermons or you can watch them online. This digital e ecclesiology movement is actually online church. You create an avatar and you, you, 
again, I'm fully try. I, I don't fully understand this, so I'm a little on the techno pessimist side of this. But how, how do you, you know, create church where you create a community where you're having digital baptisms? Digital, you, they don't know who you are. There's no interaction. Um, there were people from developing nations, though, where Christianity is not a net positive politically, and so they have underground churches, and so I can see it in certain realms where it's dangerous to create actual local churches. But even they mentioned in the middle of the seminar, the online seminar, that their people are dying for personal touch, that personal engagement, that personal, whether you want to call it discipleship or spiritual formation. They know that ultimately has to happen in person. And so even the people who were most useful, you know, saying that, that this digital ecclesiology is most useful to them because of the dangers, they realized it was a second best scenario. So churches, pastors, uh, theologians, uh, religious scholars, we need to think through, I think, wisely the demands of what this technology, this goes a Amara's law. We vastly un, uh, overestimate technology in the short term, but vastly underestimate it in the long term. And that's Roy Amara. He was a futurist writing, you know, he died a, a, a decade ago. But it, I love that we vastly overestimate it in the short term, but underestimate it in the long term. And I think there will be major consequences if we think through that this is the type of church that should lead us to the future. Yeah, the church of Facebook does sound strange and odd, but maybe 20, 30 years from now, it will be a real thing. But Well, they're just releasing their dating app, aren't they? Facebook, right. you know, is getting it's into true. that, that, getting dating, into, that right. dating space, that communal space. Right, so maybe that's true. But do you think people of faith, including people in the hierarchy, people who, pastors and priests, are they addressing this issue, you think? You said you were on a panel recently. Are they aware that this is what's happening, or... And how do they meet that challenge? Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to, uh, yeah. obviously, everyone, but this panel um, and the people then that were watching it, it, it was wide-ranging. And these are people, that, again, that have built churches of uh, 10, 20, 30,000 you know, online. Those numbers online look good. Um, but I'm not sure how sustainable, how actual discipleship or spiritual formation is created through that venue. Um, and the part of the church, it's not uh, individualistic, right? If I understand church history, if I understand the church fathers, it is to create community, to develop um, a Christian community so that you can be salt and light to the world. And if, if, if our world is slowly becoming more individualized, slowly becoming more attached to our screens, I personally don't see how that can cultivate strong social bonds. Right. No, I agree with you. But I guess when it comes to that, we'll have to stay tuned and see what the future Yeah, holds. it's developing right now. And so right. I guess strictly back to your question, the awareness at least needs to be out there, that, that this is happening, that there is a major push, and we have to think through the questions, is that, are, is that a wise thing to do? Right. Well, it's been a great conversation. Dan, thank you for being here with us today. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thank you. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by contributor Clemente Lisi, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.